You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Well, I'm not Josh, but my name is Sean, in case you didn't know. Uh, I, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and so um, I'm excited to be back. I've been gone for a little while. Um, yeah, sickness hit our household, and I'm feeling much better. Everybody's doing much better, but I'm uh, ready to jump back in, and I get to kick us off with this new sermon series called Rhythms, Finding Rest for Your Soul. Rhythms, Finding Rest for Your Soul. <clears throat> One of the things that, uh, that we'd like to do here at Refuge is create healthy yearly rhythms. Now, here's, here's the deal. It is there are these seasons uh, in, in our natural life that just kind of take place. Like um, every fall and into the winter, uh, we're thinking of a season of kind of like work. You kind of get back in the rhythm of like your regular life. If you, you know, if you're at school, you're like kind of going back into like, okay, here we go. We're working. You know, if you are, uh, if you're a parent, you may have experienced that sense of like, okay, now I'm able to focus on my work a little bit better now that my kids are in school. You know, um, there's this sense of, but there's this sense of work in in the fall and winter t- season, and then in in spring, there's a sense of like growth. We we think about the the season of growth. And then, uh, obviously, because it's spring, and then in, um, in summer, what we see is more of a season of rest, where people are like kind of like taking their vacations and enjoying their time outside and these kinds of things. And so in these seasons, we have different ways that we get to participate in these seasons. And, and so we're talking about these seasons as, as, way, these, as rhythms that we get to participate in. And there's a reality that whether or not we as a church participate in them intentionally, we are going to participate in these things of, of work, uh, of, of growth, and of rest. We're going to be doing these things whether or not we like it. And so what we would like to do is do this well. And so for us, as we think about the fall, we're thinking about, like, how do we as a church, like, encourage uh, a healthy rhythm of work? And so in the fall, we're going to be thinking about ways to do outreach and go and, and, and inviting people in. And if y'all remember last fall, we had that whole like um, launch season, right? Where we were like intentionally going out, regularly going and, and trying to reach new people. Well, and then you get to Easter and, there's, and you get to this time of, of growth and you're thinking, okay, we've had new people come in. How do we cultivate that healthy growth in them? How do we think about discipleship? Now that we've got new people coming in, how do we disciple them and cultivate their spiritual health? And so we're thinking about growth in that season. And then in, in the summer, it's a season of rest. And so what we are doing as a church is going, okay, community groups, if um, you need to do what is most restful for you. So for um, the, the, what this means is that you get, you get to choose, your group gets to say, like, it's most restful for us to, like, not meet at all during the summer. We need to take a break. Or it's most restful for us to hang out every day, like... You can choose how much you want to do that, and the whole point is, like, what is restful for you? And so we've created, we're creating these rhythms. We're trying to get in. I mean, we're a new church, so we're just starting these things, but we hope that as we do these things, we, we engage you and help you to understand what it looks like to do these things well, and then to take the, that and internalize it and do these things on a regular basis, because work is not just for the fall. 
It's a rhythm that is going to take place every day in your life. You're going to experience some sort of work every day in your life. And how do you do that in a way that is glorifying to God, where you're bringing truth and beauty and goodness into this world through the work of your hands, through your creativity and through what you're doing? Or growth when you're thinking about your spiritual health. We're not just talking about the spring. We're talking about, like, we should be cultivating our spirit our spirit inside of us, we should be working and, and, and on that, thinking about, like, how do I keep healthy rhythms of, of growth, spiritual growth, prayer and scripture reading and discipleship and being plugged into a community, these kinds of things that we're thinking about, uh, healthy growth. And then in the, in the summer, like, how are we resting? How are, and how, it's not just for the summer, though. It's for, for a regular rhythm of rest. We learn to rest in Jesus on a daily basis. And so we're thinking about these rhythms, and I'm going to be diving today into the rhythm of work or the, the, um, the yeah, that, that, that season of work, that rhythm of work. And what I want to do today is kind of give you a, a biblical theology of work. And what I mean by that, I don't mean like, oh, I'm just going to teach you about work and I'm going to say that it's biblical because it's from the Bible. What I mean is like biblical theology is working your way through the whole narrative of scripture and pulling out this piece so that you might see it from a, a biblical worldview. So, and I'm, I'm going to break it down into five different guideposts. We're not going to do three-point sermon today. We're doing a five-point guidepost sermon. And what we're doing is we're going to have creation, fall. It's a, yeah, it's a lot, right? Five. Uh, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, church. That's one way to think about the biblical narrative. People do it different ways. I like this one because it includes Israel, which is like, the majority of the Bible, uh, and oftentimes there's like other, you may do creation, fall, restoration, or new creation, or something like that, but these are just different ways for us to work our way through the biblical narrative. I want to include Israel. I think it's important. It actually, that's a, that whole five, it's a five-act play that comes from uh, N.T. Wright that helps us to understand the scripture all the way through like that. Um, and so we're going to be working through these guideposts, and as we go, I'm going to talk about uh, the rhythm of work in each one, the way that it's defined, and the way that, it, what it should teach us. And I hope that along the way, there are some really helpful applications that transform the way we think about our own work. So, um, we're going to go ahead and dive into that first part, uh, which is creation. Creation. In the very beginning of the Bible... Uh, is, is the work of creation. It's God who is creating. God is the first one at work. Not a human, God. God is working. In fact, Genesis 2-2, when he closes out his six days of work and on the seventh day, it says this, on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God is at work. God is creating and bringing life out of, he's turning chaos into order. God is bringing flourishing out of nothingness. This is the, the idea that we get work in creation. This is what's happening. God, who doesn't need anything, who isn't trying to earn anything, who isn't trying to sustain himself by anything that he does, this God is bubbling over with creative love and joy and flourishing and life and it comes out and he's creating and this is what he's doing this, this is the work that he does it's not tied to any need of his own it's purely out of creative joy that he's that he's doing this so work from the very beginning 
is, is in God himself doing something beautiful, creating something, bringing order out of chaos. This is the work that he's doing. But the, the narrative in creation, we get to this, this the, um, in Genesis 2, it kind of like retelling of that, that first story. And when it retells it, it says that there was no, there was no shrub in the field. Uh, there were certain plants that just weren't there. Be- and it says because, uh, we're going to go to actually Genesis 2, 5. It says this, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land. No plants of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Part of the reason there was no field, there was no shrub there. Part of the reason that didn't exist in this narrative is because there was no human to work the ground. That seems really strange to me. God does not need a human to work the ground. God does not need you or me to make sure that life happens. God speaks planets into existence. He doesn't need a human to make plants come into existence. God is the one who's doing it. And so what I see here is God saying, I'm going to stop for a second and I'm going to invite you into my work. I'm going to stop for a second and you get to participate in what I do. I'm here to bring life out of this ground, life out of dust, and I'm going to invite you to come and bring life out of this dust. That's part of what the narrative teaches us. This is, it's so beautiful because now as we see this story, in the story of creation, what we see is God is at work and we are participating in his work. Your work is an invitation to partner with God in his work. This is an important thing. I want you guys to catch this. Your work is an invitation to partner with God in his work. Everything that you do is an invitation to participate in the work that God is doing, of creating flourishing, life-giving order in this world. God's work, that work of, of creating, ordering, cultivating, flourishing, that's what we are participating in when we work. That's what we were intended to do in the creation narrative. And this is why in Genesis 1, we have uh, the first man and woman are told, hey, uh, we want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. The idea is God is inviting humans to participate in his work. He doesn't want to do it alone. He wants to invite us to be part of it. But here in Genesis 2.15, we get even more information down in in verse 15. Um, And that was the verse that was just read. It says this, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it, to work it and watch over it. These words, work and watch, are also, they could be translated like cultivate and sustain. The main idea is that this this garden uh, that God has made, um, he's placing this human there, not just to keep it alive, but to help it to flourish. I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but but there's one more thing worth mentioning uh, with these, these two words, actually. These two words for work and watch are also words that are used of priests in the temple later on. There's something going on here where the author of Genesis, who is, who's writing during the time when they're, uh, when they're thinking about the priesthood, when they're putting the priesthood together... He's, he uses these words, and it almost is like, I want you to see that the work that they're doing on the ground is the kind of work that you're doing in the temple. 
In fact, the idea in, in Genesis 1 and 2 is, is they're actually, God is presenting uh, the, the garden as a kind of temple. It's where he dwells. It's a place that has all this imagery that's in the temple. And now they're working and watching it like priests. There's this really beautiful thing happening here. And, and what I think it teaches us is that it doesn't matter if you are, are digging ditches or cleaning animal feces off the ground or running a Fortune 500 company, your work is holy. That's what they're, they're in the garden, taking care of a garden, and God is representing them as like priests in the temple. As long as your work is tied to his work, your work is holy. Your work is always holy when it's tied to God's work. And when you are participating in the cultivation of all that belongs to God and, and everything belongs to God, you know, like that's the, that's the reality is that, that as we begin to cultivate the world around us, no matter what you're doing, whatever, whatever your job might be, whatever kind of work you might do, as long as you are participating in bringing life and flourishing into this world, the truth and beauty and goodness into this world, you are participating in the work of God. And so this, this is the, the beautiful part of the creation narrative. We get, this, we get this picture of what work was supposed to be. No need there. Adam and Eve also did not have a need. All of their needs were met. They had all the fruit they could eat. Food was abundant. They're not worried about these things. They weren't working to eat. They were working to participate in what God was doing to bring life into this world, to bring goodness into this world. But then we have the part of the narrative, the next guidepost is the fall. And Genesis 3 tells us that those who were supposed to care for the garden, to cultivate the garden, they exploited its goods. As you can remember or may remember, uh, God planted uh, one tree in the garden that uh, he commanded Adam to, not to eat from. And Adam and Eve both eat from this tree in hopes that they might become divine or like God. And there were <clears throat> several things that resulted from this. Number one, there were bro broken relationships between humans. Adam and Eve were hiding from each other. There was a broken relationship between humanity and God. They're cast out of that temple garden where his presence is so fully felt. Um, and then between themselves and the ground, which is so strange, the ground is cursed and they're, they're going to be toiling. And then even between them and their own bodies, death and then even like when it talks about the pain of childbirth and these kinds of things. But the big thing for us in, in the fall narrative is to understand that their work essentially is cursed. The, when the ground is cursed, their work is cursed. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says this. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bre uh, bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. In the story, humans uh, are taken out of the ground and given the job of bringing life out of the ground. And now they're going to struggle. They're going to end up bringing death out of the ground. And that death that they bring out of the ground is going to daily remind them that their death is coming and they will end up back in that ground. The story of the fall 
This narrative, as we get to the fall, turns their work from joyful participation in God's work into some kind of like daily grind to earn, to survive. Man, so many people now feel the effects of the curse. This is not just some ancient story that has no meaning for us today. Think about that. Those living paycheck to paycheck today, they know that, that reality. And, and many people are living like that, working, you know, 60 to 80 hours a week, struggling. I actually met a woman uh, at the hospital uh, who was in the hospital specifically because uh, she had been working like this. Uh, she's, she was uh, close to retirement, but she was still working around, around 80 hours a week at a grocery store, standing on her feet. Um, 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week. No, no joke. Like, like, that was her life. And she said she got home one day, and she went to the bathroom. And as she was standing in the bathroom, she said her legs just gave out. And she laid on the floor trying to get help for three days. For three days. She finally got up somehow the ability to pull herself to a phone to call someone, and she didn't end up starving to death. She was taken to the hospital, and she was taken care of. And I remember sitting there talking with her and being like, so maybe you need to take a break from working, you know, maybe. And there's a reality. She said, yeah, but for that, that is not an option for people, for some people. The reality is that people are killing themselves to survive working simply to survive, and all the while they see the thorns and the thistles that remind them of their future demise. That is work under the curse. That paycheck to paycheck, that reality that, that all of it is leading eventually to death, and we're just trying to keep ourselves alive. We work, we, we work to earn, and we grind, and we hustle, and we push, and we push, and we push in hopes of having a better life. And the sad thing is not just physical health, it's like emotional health, it's relational health. Think about the single mother who's just trying to, you know, who doesn't have the time to even pour into her children because she's so busy working to feed them. Like these are real, these are realities in, here in our nation. As rich and as wonderful it is, as it is, there are people who are struggling on a daily basis. This is not how it was intended to be. This is not what work was intended to be. Adam and Eve weren't earning their paychecks again, you know. They had all they needed. They were joyfully participating in the work of God. They lived in a world of more than enough. And the curse is what brought about, 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 uh, brought about scarcity. Scarcity is, the, is, is really the problem now because of the curse. And it's only in an environment of scarcity that food has value. It's only in an environment of scarcity that food has value. Now, I want to be clear about this. I don't mean that, like, you know, uh, if there, I, I don't mean that, like, food is not valuable if it's all around. I, I mean, like, it's valuable in the sense that, like, I, my favorite food is chicken wings. And so even if I had, a, you know, a bunch of food, it would still be valuable to me. I don't mean, like, personally valuable, subjectively valuable. I mean, like, I can slap a, a price tag on it because everybody is fighting for it. That's what I mean. When I say that scarcity, uh, an environment of scarcity is the only place where food is going to have value like that. You, you realize that like, we have to work to earn because if we don't work, we don't eat. 
And that is a result of the fall. That is a result of this part of this narrative. Humans have found a way to deal with this curse, though. I mean, essentially, uh, we see uh, the biblical narrative to continue from here into violence. What happens is, is all of a sudden people go, okay, well, you know what? Food is scarce. Here's what we're going to do. Let's, let's join up. Let's create me and my group, and then we will defeat you and your group, and we'll hoard all this food so that we are okay. We don't have to worry about our safety because we have all that we need, even though we have just oppressed this people group in order to have it. You have the Tower of Babel along this narrative. You get uh, the, this group who is uh, essentially saying, we are afraid that we're going to be scattered, and so just so no one else takes us and throw, you know, takes us captive and scatters us across the nations, we're going to build this, temp- this, this temple all the way to the sky, and we're going to show how great and powerful we are. Functioning out of fear, they, they go and they, they try to make a name for themselves. You know, this, this is what we see happening. So even, even if we think we have defeated it, because guess what? In America, we're so rich. We're so well taken care of. 90% of us, uh, you know, are like doing okay. The other 10% live in poverty. But 90% of us are okay, and we can feel like, oh, it's, it's, it's all good. But I'll tell you what, we live off the backs of those 10%. The ones who are willing to work those jobs that none of us are willing to work, we live because they, beat, they, they kill themselves for us. Sure, capitalism has helped to uh, deal with the curse in one way. It's one human system, and it's just as broken as all the other human systems. It leads to some thriving, maybe more thriving than, than a lot of other places, and yet we still know that there is a reality that capitalism only makes it good for the 80 to 90%, you know? And then you have this other 10% who, who we are basically living off of. There's always going to be a, an oppressed people group because we live in, a, in that realm of the curse, of scarcity. And, you know, it's, it's this thing where we can look at it and we can go like, man, no, but we're doing, we're doing well. Like, I have a job I enjoy and um, I'm not hurting anybody. But it's because it's part of the system that makes it possible. We get to participate in it. And I don't mean to make it sound like capitalism is evil or whatever. I mean, like, every human system is broken. That's the point. You know, um, we, 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 had to, we went from a, a system in the United States of slavery to, to, like, trying to figure out how do we then function without slaves, you know? And we, we're constantly trying to figure out how to make sure that there's more rich people and less poor people, and yet there's always going to be people who are oppressed and at the bottom in any human system. That is just the reality of the curse that we live under, because scarcity exists. And so, while our system might be better than any ancient system, maybe I... <laughs> There's still people at the bottom killing themselves so that we might thrive. But the biblical narrative doesn't stop there. This, that, that is the picture of work under the curse in this biblical narrative. It's dark. It's sad. It's scary. But God wants to redeem work. And so he invites this nation named Israel to be a blessing to all nations. 
And one of the clearest places where he begins to define uh, who Israel is is in, the, is, in the, uh, is in Deuteronomy when you begin to get their laws. And uh, in, you get the Ten Commandments. And actually, one of the cool things in the Ten Commandments, is there, there's a, a part where it says, uh, it, it says that you shall not serve other gods. That word for serve is the same word used in Genesis 2.15 for work. You shall not serve other gods. It's the same word for work. And what is going on is, is essentially God is tying people's work to worship. And he's trying to help them remove their, idea, their ideas of work being tied to, I earn through my hands. And it becomes really, really, really clear when we get to the blessings and the curses. The De- De- Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, uh, in verse 12, it's, uh, it's talking about the blessings. It says, the Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse, the sky to give your land rain its season uh, and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And then if, that's if they're doing well, if they're being faithful to Yahweh. But if they're not being faithful to Yahweh, verses 38 through 40, it says this, you will sow much seed in the field, but harvest little because locusts will devour it. You will plant and cultivate vineyards, but not drink the wine or gather the grapes because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your territory, but not moisten your skin with oil because your olives will drop off. Now, these blessings and curses have been used by by churches uh, to do horrible theology. (laughs) Essentially, it's like, hey, if you work hard and if you you are obedient to God, you're going to get everything you want. You're going to be healthy, wealthy, and rich. You know, like, you're going to be great. Um... And then if you do bad, like if you're having a hard time, you must have, you must have, you know, done something wrong. God must be mad at you. And that is not the point of these blessings and curses. Like I, I want to be very clear. God is trying to help them to understand that it's not the work of their hands that is sustaining them, but it is the, the worship of their hearts that sustains them. That the work that they do when they are participating in God's work when they're seeing what they do as a, to be a blessing and flourishing in this world, when they see all that they do, when they go, you know what, I'm going to plant this vineyard, not just because I need to feed my family, but when I'm going, oh, I, I get to plant this vineyard to be a blessing to the rest of the community, and maybe uh, I can give even more to those strangers and foreigners that are coming into our land. God creates all these laws and says, like, let them take off the edges of your fields, God's like trying to say, like, quit worrying about all those little things. Quit working to earn. Because the moment, the moment you do that, the moment you have a bad season, the moment uh, the, the paycheck's not coming in, all of the sudden scarcity mindset hits you and you realize you hadn't been depending on God at all. The whole time you've been depending on the work of your hands and it has failed. And here... He's inviting Israel to go, let's come back to that original reason for work, to participate in the flourishing of this world. That's the goal. And so when he sets up these blessings and curses, the whole idea of the narrative, that's what it's about. It's not, it's not to like try to, like we figured out the formula and we're going to get what we want because we worship just right, you know. It's not what it's about. He's saying come and work like you were intended to work. Be a part of the blessing of this earth and stop trying to hoard and take and, and earn. 
And so this is, this is what happens uh, with Israel, is he's inviting them into this, and yet they, they do the same thing that every other human uh, society has done. They find themselves afraid because of scarcity. Uh, they find themselves fighting and, and, you know, like worshiping other gods. They turn to other gods and start serving them out, out, out of fear, right? Like out of like, maybe this God will help us protect us in this, in this season. Maybe this God will help protect us in this season. And eventually they end up, uh, instead of being a blessing to all nations as they were called to be, instead of overturning this whole curse thing and becoming so blessed that they could be like, fill the earth with goodness they end up becoming slaves in a foreign land in the biblical narrative. Israel ends up as slaves in a foreign land, and, and it really never gets much better. They get released from that, but even by the time Jesus comes along, like, they're still under the power of Rome. They're still not uh, the nation that's bringing blessings to everybody. They're just barely trying to hang on. And this is where everything is finally able to be turned around is in this guidepost of Jesus in the biblical narrative. Jesus completely overcomes, over, over, just overcomes the curse of scarcity through full reliance on God. He starts his ministry off in it, going into a desert without food or water for 40 days and 40 nights. He's like, I don't depend on bread alone. I'm not worried about this. I depend on my God. And then he comes out of the desert, and the first thing he does is shows up to a place where scarcity exists. He goes to this wedding, and they're like, oh, no, we're out of wine. And he is like, I don't think so. And, you know, he, like, gives, gives them all the wine they need, you know. They, um, and, and then, you know, Jesus is supplying, he's supplying everybody with more than enough. He goes, shows up, you know, and he's like, we need to feed all these people. Okay. And he takes a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread and he, he multiplies it and feeds 5,000 people. And then, you know, does it again, uh, you know, with 4,000 people. Like there's just this like abundant overflow everywhere Jesus goes. It seems like there's, there's always more than enough. And yet at the same time, he, he's, he, he, he's going with nothing, you know? Like, he kind of was just walking around with nothing on, on him, you know? He always has more than enough, and, and he's got this, like, mindset where he's constantly depending on God. This is, is the beauty of what Jesus does. He reveals to us that we don't have to be stuck in this mindset of scarcity, but that we can begin to participate in that life-giving presence of God here and now with all of our work. Now, after feeding the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, Jesus does something really interesting, and he then says, uh, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Whoever eats of me will never hunger, you know. And then at the, right before his, uh, his death, he invites his disciples to partake in communion, uh, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper, right, at the Last Supper. And they're eating and drinking, and he says, this is my body and this is my blood. Essentially saying, like, look, I, I am God. Come and feast on life and goodness, and you will never have to worry about that stuff again. You will never have to worry about that stuff again. And then he goes to the cross and dies, which sounds, seems really strange, right? Like, you're like, oh, he's, like, full of life and flourishing, and then he goes to the cross and he dies. And you're like, well, hold on a second. I thought you were eternal life. 
And then, ta-da, resurrection, boom. Like, he's, he's like, actually, I am. Um, but what's, what I think is, is really, really important for us is that we begin to understand that this is, this is how he overturns this curse, through the cross, as he invites us to participate in him and recognize that he is the very life. God is the life that we needed, and that's all that we needed to sustain ourselves. In Romans uh, 6.23, this is, he says, it says this, Paul says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you get like you've been working to earn wages. You've been working to earn wages. And when we think about the, the biblical narrative, the work that they did to earn wages only brought forth thorns and thistles and death. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to take that. I'll take all your thorns, all your thistles, all your brokenness, all the striving, all of that, and the wages that you have earned, you've worked so hard for, I will take that death that you deserved. And Jesus goes and dies on that cross and then raises from the dead to give us eternal life, to invite us back into that work that we were originally called to. And then all that striving simply to avoid death, it now can come to an end because Christ has died the death that we earned. We can finally rest in his life-giving presence and participate as cultivators of truth and beauty and goodness. Not because we fear that we won't survive, but because, um, because we trust that God is, is that we trust, we've trusted in God with a relationship with him. I want you to get this here. This um, I'm gonna. It's gonna be up here. It just says uh, Jesus's work transforms our work from grueling death sentence into a meaningful calling. Jesus's work transforms our work from a grueling death sentence into a meaningful calling. You understand that the brokenness of this world can feel pretty dark, and yet when you begin to see what's Able, what your work is able to be and how it participates in God's work and how Christ invites you to stop worrying about the, the stuff of this world, all of a sudden, you stop focusing from, on this mindset of scarcity and you begin to focus on the life-giving presence of God. And then that ultimately moves us into the final guidepost, which is the church. Jesus transforms the church. He makes us able to do this whole thing. We see the church receiving in the, in the biblical narrative, receiving the spirit and dwelling in them. And one of the markers that they have God's spirit is this radical generosity. In Acts, we see the church, uh, it says that everyone shared all things and had all things in common. No one was worried about keeping and, and hoarding and saying, I earned this, so I can't share this. It's just like, no, it's all for everybody. And everybody had all that they needed. That's the picture of the church, the early church. And the early church was very well known for their generosity, like for real, like the, the, the world around them would, was confused at how they could take care of all these widows and all these orphans. It kind of messed with Ro the, the Roman Empire because it's like Rome's supposed to be strong and supposed to show us how, how it's going to bring peace to all and take care of everybody, but their, their widows are starving. They're dying. Their orphans are, are not going to make it. These Christians are taking up orphans off the street. And so Christianity began to change and revolutionize things as Christ began to open up their hearts to these things. Now, the, the cool thing is that, that 
with Paul, he still had his job of being a tent maker occasionally. Like, he was still doing these things. It's not like they just stopped working completely. They still did their work, but they saw it all as participation in the work of God. And what's even more beautiful is that, that this now transforms, Christ now transforms for you and for me that all of our work, no matter what it is. Even uh, in Colossians, we see that even slaves who are a part of this broken world and their job, which really is not a job, it's, it's, it's oppression, is given dignity. They're told, they're told, stop working for your oppressors. Don't worry about that. Work unto God. Glorify him in all that you do. Bring beauty into that household every time you sweep that floor, every time you take care of those children, every time you teach those children, every time you do some, do bring beauty into this world because you're participating in God's work. And it gave dignity to even the work of slaves. To be clear, this doesn't mean that uh, we will always have more, like an abundance of food and we will never have to worry. I, in reality, Paul says that he was without food and water for a time. He starved. There are people who die of starvation today. There are children. There are, you know, like, there are horrible things that still happen today. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you, like, oh, now we're good. We don't have to worry about scarcity because we have Jesus. Like, that's not the message that I'm preaching. What I'm saying is that in this world of scarcity where, yes, people will die because we still live in this world that is under the curse. We can not set our eyes on, on, on our own lack and our own worry and our own striving and earning, and we can just set our eyes on going after God, and we live as long as we live, and we thank him for the time that we have, and we thank him for the fact that we get to participate in flourishing, even if it's only for a short amount of time. And that transforms our work, no matter what, uh, brokenness that there is. Now, I've seen miracles. You know, I've seen people get taken care of when you, you know, paychecks show up. These things happen. I'm not saying that they don't happen, but I'm just saying, like, we still live in an environment of scarcity. But that is not what should define our work. When we turn our eyes away from me getting for myself and taking and worrying about myself and we turn them towards, how can I bring more truth and beauty and goodness into this world through everything that I do? Now, the other beautiful thing about this for us is that it, it dignifies work that doesn't receive a paycheck. It dignifies work that doesn't receive a paycheck. The work of parenting, you know, the work of, of social justice, the work of evangelism. Man, and it's also good news for those who are retired. Like, you are in a place, if you know, as, as a retiree, like you're in a place where you are not working to earn. You get a foretaste, and I, know, I don't know if this is true for you, but you get a foretaste of heaven. A little taste of like, man, I don't have to strive to make money. I can just go and participate in bringing good into this world. It's not, now it's no longer about earning. I don't have to worry about that. You know, like, as a Christian, really, I don't think we're ever called to, like, just stop working, right? Like, retirement is, is just a new calling into participating in this flourishing in some new way. Whatever that might look like for you. And maybe you get a taste, of, a foretaste of heaven simply by uh, doing your favorite, uh, doing, doing a job that you love. 
Maybe your job, it doesn't feel like you're earning a paycheck. It just feels like you're doing something you love. Great. Enjoy it. I mean, like, take advantage of that. Like, great. You, you participate in that. Bring goodness and life and flourishing into this world and use your paycheck to care for and love others as well. Like, that's, this is the beautiful thing about it. It's like, whether or not you're making money or earning, like, that it no longer becomes the, uh, the, the determining factor of whether or not you have value or whether or not your work is important. What really happens is then all of a sudden your work is transformed into Christ's work, God's work, the work that he's doing to bring beauty and goodness and truth into this world. Christ's work on the cross has turned our striving into joyful participation in something that will outlast whatever company you, company you work for or whatever career you have. So when we talk about creating a healthy rhythm for work, the goal is to see how Christ redeems our work and invites us to participate in this, this age-old calling uh, driven not by earning but by passion and imagination um, and love for God and what he's doing. We get to go and make this world a beautiful place. If you're a, a, you know, if you're a server at a restaurant, be the best server you could possibly be. Make those people at that table feel like the number one people in that place. You know, bring beauty into that place. If 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 you push a broom and that's what you do for a living. Make that place the most beautiful place you've ever seen. Keep those floors swept really well. And you know what? If you're a software developer, make great things. You know, make apps that make people's lives better and easier. There are lots of ways to participate in this. You know what I mean? Like all the, all the things that we could do with it, whatever job we have, there are so many different ways to do this, to bring beauty and goodness into this world. Don't tell me you don't feel that sense of goodness when you go through the Chick-fil-A drive-thru and you're just like, this is so smooth. Like, this is just like, they know how to do this thing right. It feels good because they have figured out a system and they are all, I, I, I have not had a bad experience where I've been driving through and they had a bad attitude. Like, they had a good, at, every one of them in that line is like, yeah, how can I help you? And they're like, ready to, like, it feels good going through there. They made my day slightly better. You know what I mean? Bring truth and beauty and goodness into this world through every little thing that you do because that's how we participate in the work that God is already doing. And one last thing. I'm going to close with this. It's also important to remember that whatever you find yourself, uh, whenever you find yourself returning to that place of earning and scarcity and, and in your rhythms of work, and we're all bound to do that, right? Like, the reality is the curse still exists. Like, I'm, I still, if I don't have a paycheck tomorrow, I mean, you know, my family can starve. You know, like, there's that reality that still exists. So we can all go there. But when we do, we can return. We can always just go straight back to serving God again. We can turn our eyes off of that and turn our eyes to bringing beauty and goodness into this world. Because Christ's work on the cross enables us to fail, to fall short, to say, man, I, at times I'm looking, I'm looking to earn my way through this. I stopped looking to you for help. And Christ is like, I know, I'm taking care of it all. That's the beauty of the work of God because he, no matter what we're doing, he's, over, he's still at work. He's still doing his thing, bringing truth, beauty, and goodness into this world, bringing flourishing and life into this world. And whether we, whether we fail and we turn and we are 
building our own little castles and thorns and thistles are coming out or, or not, like, we can always jump right back into his work because of what Christ has done. I'm going to go ahead and, and pray and close this out. But I hope that this, this has been encouraging. Like, as you think about the biblical narrative of work and you think about, like, man, what does this mean for me and my work? And the work that I do that gets paid and the work that I do that isn't, isn't paid, like, what, is, what does it mean for me and how can I be a participant in making my rhythms of work uh, part of God's work? God, thank you so much for your goodness and your love. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of bringing life into this world, into a world of scarcity, into a world of thorns and thistles, into a world where we return to the ground. You invite us to give people a foretaste of what heaven is like, to see the beauty of of a person who can joyfully participate in your work even the most menial tasks, even those things that may seem like something no one else would want to do. You redeem our work by your work. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 